0: Okay, good to see you. Uh, welcome back. We are in the book of 2 Samuel, which is in the Old Testament, and uh, we've been there for a while. We're looking at the life of David, and uh, we have teaching from the Bible here every week. My name's Joel, by the way, and um, we we found uh, in recent weeks looking at the this fairly sad stage in the life of David where he had to um, be exiled from his home. As king, he was kind of overtaken, his, his country kind of rejected him, being led in a rebellion by none other than his son, Absalom. So David, at this point in the story, has gone through some real pain. We've just kind of closed that chapter because Absalom, the leader of the rebellion, has been defeated, it has been crushed. Absalom himself died. It was a, a tragic end for David's son. But David now is, uh, is setting up again after the the, the, the trouble and kind of re-establishing himself as king. But it, it has involved him connecting with some individuals um, who, who have stories of their own that we can learn from. Now, all of that is, is, is ancient history, stuff from from what, about 3,000 years ago in a very distant culture. And it's easy for us in 21st century Brighton to imagine it's, it's got nothing to do with us. But here's the thing about the Bible. Uh, it, it actually does relate to the very stuff of our lives. Uh, we take the Bible to be God's gift to us, that he speaks through it. He's with us when we open it and talk from it and learn from it. And he wants to apply it to the very real needs in our lives. Each one of us, we go about our lives with needs, with problems, with issues, with particular yearnings, passions and hungers desires, priorities that we build our lives around. And what I want us to see from the story I'm going to to you in just a moment is that we're going to see two characters whose priority, their passions, the things they care about the most, the things that go first for them, they come to the surface very obviously in these bits of their stories. You can see what makes them tick. And as such, there's, there's a great deal for us to learn from them about ourselves and about, about the priorities that we need to set. Uh, so, so that's where we're going to go. We're going to talk about, really talk about kind of spiritual hunger, about, about desire and yearning. Each of us has this, even if we, we don't believe there's a spiritual world. We don't maybe even think in terms of spiritual things, but we, we do have longings and desires that kind of really focus our lives and affect our lives. And I want us to look at what that meant for these people here and how we can learn from their example, if you like. So I'm going to read to you from 2 Samuel 19 and verses 24 to verse 40. And uh, like I said, it's really here two people, two different people. They've they've both been loyal to David, the, the king, while David was in trouble, while David was cut off and in exile, these two people were loyal to him. One was loyal to him by being really close next to him, helping him, supporting him, resourcing him in his his need. The other was loyal to him at a distance. It's a little bit like, I suppose, if um, in, in the time when Mandela came out of prison and got the nation, a little bit like that for David here, that he's kind of coming out of his, his, uh, his difficulty and the nation's turning to him. There's these, these two people. Imagine if there's one, one person was with Mandela on Robben Island all through his incarceration and had been loyal to him from there. The Another person was loyal to him in his absence, stayed committed to the cause, uh, even from a distance, perhaps back in the city, back serving the cause that Mandela was... Was, was serving in prison. And you kind of got two ways of being loyal there. And that's, that's what I see in these two stories. So let's read from verse 24 onwards. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. When he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Zeba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Now, Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogelim and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Machanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me. And I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord, the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant Chimmam. Let him go over with my lord, the king, and do for him what seems good to you. The king answered, Chimam shall go over with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you and all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan and the king went over and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and he returned to his own home. And the king went on to Gilgal and Chimam went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Okay, so we got two people, Mephibosheth and Barzillai. One of them is faithful behind lines and the other is faithful at the finish. And so I want to look at them according to to those two two categories. But let's start with with Mephibosheth. He is faithful behind lines and that's where he, he is. We find him having... Uh, spent the whole of the time of David's exile back in Jerusalem, back in the city. And he's, he's been loyal to David the whole time. It turns out that this is against what David had been told. See, see Mephibosheth had a servant, Zeba, who David and Mephibosheth both knew. David knew the servant. And Zeba, this servant, had... Really behaved in a, in a in a cruel, in a deceptive way. He he had he had left Mephibosheth behind. Mephibosheth was lame, and at the point where the trouble came for David, what happened was Ziba saw this as an opportunity, left his his immobile master behind, who, who couldn't move, couldn't travel fast, got to David. And slandered his master said oh he's he 's joined the other side he's he's gone over to your son absalom he's he's gone he, I, you shouldn't have really trusted him i never I always thought he was a shady character and really you should be glad that he's made his mind up because i'm here and i'm happy to help and he turns up with a donkey and a whole load of stuff. You may have remembered this. we did this a few weeks ago and it, it was it was enough for David to swallow he actually seemed to take zebra's far-fetched version of the story for some reason, but now the truth is out. Now it's clear they get to to the point where they're seeing Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth is, is actually showing that he was all along perfectly loyal to David. And it's interesting seeing his integrity, in fact, on display. You see it kind of in the first verse we read. It says, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, verse 24, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. That may sound like extra information. <laughs> Why would we need to know about his poor hygiene? No, this, this guy is showing his loyalty. It's, it's showing that he has not attended to himself as one who is blending in happily with the new regime. So his his master, his true master, to whom he has become devoted, he loves David. He loves the true king. He loves the king that God has given to Israel. God raised up David. God chose David. David is the Messiah, if you like, the Christ, the anointed one. He's the one that God's chosen to bless people with. God loves his people, and so he gives them his dear David. He loves David. He wants He wants to bless his people with them. And Mephibosheth received that gift. He was glad to receive God's gift to him. He loved David. He loved being in his house. He loved being at his table. He loved the friendship he had with him. And so when Absalom replaces his dad, <laughs> for Mephibosheth, this is no neutral thing. This is not, well, new guy, old guy, who cares? No, no, no. This is a disaster because Absalom was, was not a man after God's heart. Mephibosheth knew it all too well. And he, as a response, he, he, he knew that he was completely out of touch with the surrounding culture. He decided, I'm not going to pretend that this is okay. I'm not going to just blend in. I'm not going to be complacent. In a world that is rejecting my master, I'm going to carry on longing for the master he's my true master i want the true king to return and right there there's, there's there's an example there's an inspiration to me and to you you see if you follow jesus and i know not everyone here is a christian but but let me just talk in these terms for a moment those who have said to jesus i trust and follow you you you've devoted your life in fact you've become deeply connected to a king who, in a sense, is absent, like David was absent for a while. We don't see him. We don't see him yet, not in the way that we'll see him one day. We don't see everything set straight. We don't see his kingdom established. What we actually see is other kingdoms. We see other rulers, other less righteous, less, less pure authority figures and influences having a huge impact on our world, on our society, on our culture. And we, we, we kind of realise that we're out of step sometimes. It feels like that quite often. Maybe for some of us, it's actually at the point of becoming a follower of Jesus. I suppose you might have had this very experience where you, you met Jesus yourself and you knew that you had never met anybody like him. You heard someone explain the gospel to you, you read your Bible, you listened to some teaching and you realised Jesus is alive, he is real and he is utterly different than anyone I've ever known and I will never meet anyone quite like him. He is perfect, he is loving, he is forgiving, he is kind, he has loved me, he has died for me. He has risen for me. He right now is alive for me, praying for me. There is no one like Jesus. I love Jesus. I'm so glad I found Jesus. He's changed everything. He's taken my shame and my guilt. He's dealt with the past. He's given me peace and purpose and destiny and ambition. He's given me a future. He's taken my despair, my fear. Jesus is everything to me. And and we assume that everyone will feel the same. And we want to tell our family, we want to tell our friends. And we imagine as soon as we, as soon as we pass on the information, they will click into place as well. It will be just as good for them as it was for us. But many of us, we found it wasn't quite like that. We felt we found the most amazing person they could ever be. We told our friends and they were shocked. <laughs> Some of them might have not wanted to be our friends anymore. Sometimes even in family, it causes a sense of division. We feel however much we reach out to people and love them and show kindness, and we should do all those things. Becoming a Christian is not permission to be a jerk. You carry on showing real friendship and love and kindness to everybody that God puts across your path. But you might find, even so, you're just not fitting in in the way you used to because they don't follow him. He's not their king. He's your king, but not theirs, not yet. And that's painful. That, that creates a sense of disharmony, a sense of not quite fitting. And the thing in that stage to do that we're tempted to do is simply to blend in. Simply to say, ah, oh, forget it then. If it's not, if it's not to their liking, I, I, I'll, just have to, I'll just have to blend in. I'll just have to fit in with the world around me. Forget my loyalty to the king. Where is he anyway? Where is Jesus right now? <laughs> I'll, I'll just I'll just leave it. I won't get so cons- I, won't, I won't take it so seriously. I won't take it so seriously. That's that's the common theme of people's drift that I've noticed over the years. People who burned like a flame in love for Christ can start to dwindle. The flame goes out. It gets a little bit smoky, a little bit dying, and then they they start saying things like, "I, I just don't take it quite so seriously anymore." And you think, "What does that mean?" Quite. What do you mean by that? Well, it might mean that really in the end, their loyalty is not to the king at all anymore. Yeah, it's kind of convenient to be part of the church and I'll go along sometimes and hang out, and, but my heart is not hungry for him. I don't yearn for him. But with this man, you can see it. You can see it in his clothes. You can see it in his beard. You see this guys he's not He will not go back to normal till the king has returned. Till the king is back, I am not going to settle. And actually, that's a Christian. Until until the king has returned properly, we will never completely fit in. And and there will even be behaviours in us that will show that. It's interesting, Jesus talked a bit about this when some disciples of John the Baptist approached him. You can find this. It's an unusual verse in in Matthew chapter 9, where it describes an exchange between some disciples of John who came to Jesus and they noticed something about him. They thought they'd noticed. They said uh, in verse 14, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And they, they thought that Jesus didn't fast. If they'd asked some questions, they'd have discovered not only does he fast quite a lot, like for 40 days on one occasion, but he teaches fasting. Sermon on the Mount, he does teach his disciples to fast, but they, they didn't know him by his teaching. They knew him by his reputation. And here's the striking thing about Jesus' reputation. Jesus' reputation was feasting. That's what he was known for. He was known as a Well, they said he was a glutton and a wine-bebber. In other words, he ate too much and drank too much. That's what people said about him. Now, the only reason they said that was because he went to parties. He hung out. He made friends. He made friends with normal people. People thought, oh, that's not good for a a rabbi. You shouldn't be doing that, making friends with normal people, going to their houses, hanging out with them when they're having wine. No, 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 no. Jesus was fine with that. Jesus wanted to be in the real world, wanted to be people's lives, to love people, to make genuine friendships with people. That was what he was all about. And so John the Baptist's disciples said, what's, what's with this? What about the fasting? Jesus' response is interesting. He says to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast then. So he's predicting a time when he won't be around in quite the same way, right? He's going to ascend to heaven to rule at the right hand of God the Father. To be sure, he's definitely the king. He's definitely in control, but not so visible. He's not with his church. He's not the groom with the bride. He's the groom distant from the bride. The bride is waiting for the wedding day, waiting for the groom to return. That's what we're doing now, right? If we're followers of Jesus, we're not seeing him literally by seeing his face. We're waiting for the day. But he says when they're waiting, they'll fast. They'll they'll be fasting. There'll be more of an atmosphere of hunger because they'll yearn for the return of the king that they'll, they'll, they'll feel a little different. When, I, when I'm not with them, they'll yearn long for the king to return. Now, it doesn't mean he's saying, therefore, uh, when you're waiting, you know, don't eat anything. Food is evil, just fast all the time. No, no feasting, no feasting for you when I'm gone. No, no, he's cool with us enjoying, giving thanks for the blessings of the table. He's happy with us taking food and wine and beer and all the things that he provides and creates. God bless him for all, for all of our lives. These are things we can enjoy. They're a blessing, but they are to be in tension with fasting, feasting and fasting. Why am I talking about fasting? Is it even mentioned in the passage. I'm talking about it because it's a good barometer as to our spiritual hunger. Mephibosheth here, he is so desperate for the return of the king. He yearns, he hungers. For David to return. He wants God's man back on the throne. He, he finds it so hard to be in the city where Jesus, <laughs> to use his name, David in his situation, is not seen and in authority. If you're a Christian, you'll feel the same way, right? That's our prayer. Let your kingdom come. I want more of Jesus, don't you? If you, if you follow Jesus, you'll love him. And if you love him, you'll want him. You'll want his reign. You'll want his rule. You'll plead for it. You'll want him in your you want him in your in your relationships, in your life, in your own heart. You'll want more of him in your in your day-to-day. You want him in your marriage. If you're married, you want him in your family. You'll want him in your finances. You'll want him in your in your classroom, in your lecture hall, in your halls of residence. You'll want him in your neighborhood. You want more of him in your in your streets. You want more of him in the schools. You want more of him in the, in the workplace. You want more of him in his church. You, you yearn for him. You can't do without him. Where is he? I want more of Jesus. I'm a Christian. That's what it means. I want Jesus. Not just signed up to Jesus. Not just, yeah, I, I, I believe. I agree. No, no. I, I love him. I want more of him. Where is he? Let him return. Let your kingdom come, Lord. Let your kingdom come. Let your rule come to our lives, to our city. And that will mean times where we go without, times when we turn up for prayer meetings, times when we're quick to respond, when it's let's gather to seek God, let's pray together. Every site in this church, in Emmanuel, has prayer gatherings. Do you prioritise that like Mephibosheth? Do you see that as, of course I'm going to be there. I want more of Jesus. Or do you see that as for those, those people? Do you fast sometimes? Maybe that's a weird word for some of us, but it's, it's, it's a word that's normal in the kingdom of God. Jesus said to his disciples, when you fast, when you fast, do this. He didn't say if you fast, he said for those weird ones who fast, here are some tips. No, he said when you fast. In other words, it's kind of part of being a disciple. You'd occasionally give up food, you'd occasionally give up a meal, or maybe a few meals, maybe maybe loads of meals for several days because you're hungry, for something better even than food. Hungry for more of God. And there we have it. This is what this guy characterised by, a profound yearning and hunger for God, a hunger for God's King to be recognised, to be raised up. I would say that, that this is something you sometimes see in people. Sometimes you see individuals who develop in the church as a pastor. You just notice sometimes somebody's grip by a new hunger for God. It might not show that obviously, but it begins to show. A friend of mine is a pastor, is a pastor in Chicago. and He said he, he would gather young people who feel called to serve and lead in the church sometimes. People say, oh, I want to I be a leader. I want to be a leader in the church. And he said, all right, you join my small group. We'll do a small group for a few months. We'll meet every week and uh, we'll talk. He says, the only thing in this group, if you're going to do it, I want you to fast one day a week. That's right. No meals for one day a week. And read your Bible every day and pray every day. Just, just this term while we're meeting. don't want it to be a law forever. I, just, I expect that if you're in this group. And he says, what happens is as the months go on, he knows which ones are doing it. Not because they tell him. You just tell. It's just obvious which ones are doing it. It starts to show. It starts to show. There's a hunger that develops in them. There's a certain kind of zeal, seriousness with God. It shows with Mephibosheth, doesn't it? He's hungry for the king. That's normal Christianity. That's normal. If it's not in you, I urge you consider what's going to take. What's it going to take to create that hunger in me for God? I want you hungry for Him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, we're going to move on just quickly. One other observation on Mephibosheth before we move on. He, he, he's also shown this kind of passion in verses 29 and 30, where you get David's peculiar ruling in this situation. Don't forget the background. Mephibosheth has been lied about by Zeba, who said, Listen, Mephibosheth is split, I'm your man. At that time, a few chapters earlier, David believed Zeba and said, you can have the land. You can have Mephibosheth's land. If he's a traitor, you probably should have his land. Now David finds out Mephibosheth has probably not been a traitor. What does he say? In this situation, he, he makes what looks to me like a peculiar decision. The king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided you and Zeba shall divide the land. What's going on there? You and Ziba shall divide the land. It seems like David's being incredibly insensitive. After all Mephibosheth's been through, instead of saying, okay, well, we'll give that land right back. Ziba, could you just come and put your head upon this block, please, for being a lying cheat? No, instead he says, okay, you guys divide the land. Now, that's curious, and lots of people have theories as to why he's doing it. I think the best explanation is that it's a little bit like what happens a few pages later in your Bible, in the first book of Kings, where David's son Solomon does something similar. You might know this story. David's son Solomon becomes king, and he's an exceptionally smart king. And he has these two ladies approach him on one occasion with a baby. And they say, one of us lost our baby in the night. It died. This one is my baby, Uh, she wants to take it and say it's hers. And the other one says, no, she wants to take it and say it's hers. It's my baby. And they're arguing and arguing about this baby. Solomon says, okay, stop, stop, stop. Bring me a sword. And when I first heard this story, I was like, oh, my word. I knew the Bible was a scary book, but this is savage. What's he going to do? And he says, right, cut the baby in half. They can have half each. Now, at this point, one of the ladies says, Fair enough. Half each. Half each. The other one drops to her knees and says, let her have the baby. Let her. Let it live. And Solomon says, stop. Put the sword away. She's the real mum. The one that, the one that just wants the baby to live is the real mum. And it's interesting, looking at how this story works, it's kind of got similar Trappings. Especially since we're at a time, in the next chapter of Samuel, you'll see, there's a lot of rancor over who has what land, who's in charge of Israel, and the tribes start fighting it out between them. In that context, this takes on those kinds of colours. It's like David's doing doing a Solomon. He's saying to Mephibosheth, I want to see what's in your heart. Okay, divide the land up between you. And what does Mephibosheth come back with straight away afterwards? Verse 30, Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him take it all since my lord the king has come safely home. There, right there, you see his heart, don't you? Right there, you see the heart of a man. There, close up, you see what really goes on under the skin of Mephibosheth. Oh, listen, I I don't need the fight. I don't need to argue. I don't need the land. I just want the king. I just want your kingdom. I just want you to reign. I'm just glad you're back. All these other things, they don't matter to me. In the end, I just trust that you'll work all that out. I don't need it. You know, Jesus talked just like this in Matthew chapter 6, when he speaks to his disciples and he says, don't, don't worry about what you're going to eat. What you're going to wear, where you're going to live. Don't worry about those things because to worry about those things would be, well, to be like people who don't know God. He says that's what the pagans run after. He said, you worry about those things if you don't know God. So don't worry. Worry is not for children of God. He said, instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom of God. And that's, we've got the, just the perfect picture of somebody doing that here in this story. You're not to worry. Have you ever thought about this? You thought that Jesus actually makes that into a command. He doesn't just say a worry is not so good. It'll give you an ulcer. I would suggest try not to worry. Try to keep away from anxiety. Try to avoid stressful situations. <laughs> Jesus a little bit more straight. Don't worry. We won't have that. It's a command. He's commanding it for his people. Because friends, if you worry, it suggests you don't know what you do know. You're forgetting what you know. What do we know about God? What do we know about him that, that ought to set us free from anxiety? Strikes me, looking at Mephibosheth himself, he's quite hot on his own story. He still lives in it. He has got, in in really clear, 3D, sharp, high-precision, colour presentation, the memory of what David has done for him. He lives with it. He still cannot get over it. You see it here in verse 28. All my fathers were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you, but you, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? Now, at the beginning of the story, you might have noticed Mephibosheth is introduced as a son of Saul. Now, you don't necessarily all of you know the backstory here, but The basic point is that Mephibosheth was from completely the wrong family. When David became king, Mephibosheth was definitely next likely head in the basket, next man against the wall, because he was from the wrong family. All of his family were being wiped out. It was looking terrible. And it's like this guy... He's, he's from Saul's family. These are the traitors, the ones who hunted David down in the wilderness for years and years after his blood, used every trick, every vile scheme to kill him. <laughs> Mephibosheth's from that family. No one cares about him. No one's looking out for him. He's, just a, a, he's not just a nobody. He's, he's a pain. And David famously, a few chapters earlier in the Bible, He hunts him down not to kill him. He has him tracked down. He has him sought for. He brings him to his palace. And when you're waiting to hear the sharpening of blades, all David wants to do is say, welcome home. (laughs) He, He gives him a place at his table and he treats him as a son for the rest of his life. He says, you are welcome. You are in my family. I love you. I receive you. Welcome to the royal family. You are no longer in Saul's family. You're in mine. That's an extraordinary story. But you know, friends, if you follow Jesus, it's yours as well. We all of us belong to Adam's family, which explains everything about us, (laughs) explains all of our propensity to selfishness and pride and greed, lust, all the guilt and the shame that follows Explains everything about us, all the mess we feel about ourselves, a sense of pride and wanting the best for ourselves all the time, but also kind of hating ourselves as well. What's that from? Well, it's because we're sons of Adam. We're in the wrong family. What does Jesus do? He comes and dies for the wrong family. And he says, welcome into mine. You join me. Come to my table. Sit at my table. Come to my, feast at my table. It's yours. What's mine is yours. It's astonishing. And if it's not astonishing you, things are going to go wrong. You'll lose ground. When things bad happen, like Mephibosheth being told, you know that land you were going to have? Uh, Zebra's got a claim on it now. That happens, you'll think, God hates me. The world's against me. It's not fair. Because you stop being astonished by the grace of God upon your life. You're more astonished, more impressed by the mishaps of this passing age. So here's the thing, friends. We need to be like Mephibosheth. We need to be staggered by what God has done for us. We need to rehearse it. We need to sing about it. We need to refresh our memories regularly so that we can stay in a place of awe struck wonder because it's the only healthy place to stand. You know, I sometimes think about this when they come to the table to take communion. When we take communion normally at church, we, we're coming to a bare table. Like Mephibosheth coming to a table. Ours is always just bread and wine, just bread and cups. You know that film Hook? Some of you might have seen it when you were kids. It's about Peter Pan, it's a Spielberg film. It's got that scene with the, with the food on the table. And there's, there's this food that they're all celebrating around. And Robin Williams, he's like he's offended because there's no food here. All these kids are saying there's food. There's no food. And they're all looking really happy, satisfied, eating. It's like There's nothing on the table. And then he has this moment where he suddenly sees it. He sees it. It's like a feast. And it's like a proper feast for kids, you know, like with chocolate and candy floss. Not with pate, all right? Stuff that kids actually like to eat. And, and uh, it's kind of, wow. He's just, he's just oh my word. And it will have a food fight, and, you know, all the excitement of it. Because he just suddenly sees what the table's really got on it. You know, I think we come comes to the table and we just see bread and wine, just see, yeah, Jesus loves me and died for me. What is wrong with you? Have you seen the table? You've seen what he's offered you? Have you seen Mephibosheth? sees it. He sees it every day. I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe it. Do you see that? It will change your life. It will change every situation. Let's live there. Let me just touch before we finish, before we finish, really quickly on the other guy. And I will only touch briefly on him. Barzillai. This, this, this is a different story because this isn't about a man who's faithful behind lines. This is a story about a man who's faithful to the finish. To the finish. He's an older man and he's, he's, he's characterized by faithfulness great risk. He looks after David, Then there are people after David who would kill David and anyone harboring him. But he looks after him stubbornly, faithfully, fearlessly. He's generous to David. He's hospitable to David. And have you noticed? He looks after the next generation. His attitude is I'm not coming over to Jerusalem. I'll cross the river, but I'm going home. I'm going home to die. I'm old now. But David, take my son. Take my, He's mine. And I want him. I want the next generation to flourish. I'm here to support and to serve them. You know what this guy does? He teaches us how to get old. He teaches us how to get old well. Not everybody who gets old gets mature. Not everyone in church finishes well, sadly. I thank God that hundreds in this church do. All across the different sites, we boast an incredible array of mature people who've been through real life over the decades and stubbornly trusted God, giving thousands of pounds away to mission, to church planting, to serving the church raising up younger leaders, letting young leaders come through when they used to do everything. I used to lead worship. I used to play guitar. I used to play the tambourine. Why can't I do that? Well, if you need an explanation, we won't explain it. We're just going to replace you with someone who's 18. (laughs) What? What about me? And it's like, come on, get with with it. Keep your eyes on the king. Keep your eyes on the king. Keep your eyes on the king. It's not all about me then? Well, we all knew it wasn't all about you from the start, didn't we? It's not about any of us. There's a king. We've got to focus on serving him. And that means changes and difficulties. And You get a lot of Barzilis in healthy churches who say, okay, okay, I'll provide, I'll be hospitable, I'll serve, I'll love, I'll raise up the next generation. I love this attitude. And this is the thing that I find just so moving, is that he gives his son to David to look after. And you might think that's the end of the story, that's it. He just fades away, goes off to his own city to die. Back to Mahanaim. back across the Jordan. He's going to die. That's it. That's it. It's nice that he got in the Bible, but that's him done. I guess that may be how we're tempted to feel, many of us, as we grow gradually older. Maybe even just getting to halfway stage for some of us is a bit of a moment. Some of us have got further. Some of us watching this in other sites. You're at the stage where it's like, my life is beginning to shrink a little beginning to feel the limitations of life, losing people even, losing friends, losing some of the vigour I've had, even losing dreams, things I would have loved to have done and never got to do, maybe things that I prayed for and didn't get to see and things I hoped that would happen by the time I was old. And instead, I've kind of sort of shrunk a little bit. My life's got smaller, not bigger. Maybe I expected to have a family, and I didn't get to. I expected to get married, and it never happened. <sighs> what happened? Did God just forget me? I reckon that there are many people in church who feel like that, honestly, at their honest moments. Did God just forget me? It's just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm serving, I'm kind of <laughs> so I'll keep being faithful. But have I got any significance at all? Am I significant? I find it striking that David, it seems, looked after his son Chimham, because you can see in Jeremiah, later in the Bible, much hundreds of years, in fact, later, there's a reference to the house of Chimham near Bethlehem. It's David's hometown. This one that was entrusted to David, David took care of. And here I see my Jesus again. Because just like Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, as he reaches his last stage, his last letter, he's going to die. He knows he's going to die. He says, I'm, I've fought the good fight. I've run the race. There's a crown laid up for me. It's a moving letter. You should read it. And he says, I'm not ashamed. I know whom I've believed that he is able to keep that which I have entrusted to him. The things that we do for God that might seem feeble, the stage we've got to, we think, you know, I'm kind of forgotten. We've got no idea. God's God's burning gaze is upon your life right to the end, rejoicing over every decision, every un- Interesting decision that no one else notices, not even your kids and grandkids. <laughs> but Jesus sees it all. I'll finish with this story. Some of you have heard me say it before, but it so helps me. There's this couple that went to uh, serve Jesus overseas to help start churches and serve the poor. They gave decades to it. And they came home to their country where they grew up at the end of their lives, and they, they noticed the, on the tarmac at the airport was this kind of, this party of greeters, and they thought, oh, they, they looked out the window, look, they got balloons and banners, it must be for us. And they got to the stairs coming down, this, and they realised, oh, no, <laughs> there was a celebrity in first class. <laughs> it wasn't for us at all. And they said in their heart, this is what the, the, the husband said, In his heart, he said, this isn't fair. And it's like he says he heard a voice come back at him from heaven saying, you're not home yet. See, If if your eyes are on this passing age, you will be disappointed again and again and again and again and again until you are in despair. That's why we don't set our eyes on things below, but on things above where Christ is seated and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. So some of you older, some of you are at the stage where you're wondering, questioning your significance, your legacy. Well, question it no more. <laughs> Come back to the faithful one who keeps that which you've entrusted to him and greets you, looks forward to the crown he'll give you, the face, the smile he'll show you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this Jesus, our Saviour. Thank you for everything he means to us. We don't want to ever get over what he's done. May we never lose the wonder. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to celebrate him with our lives and with our decisions. In Jesus' name, amen.